Christmas. We're going to talk this morning about Christmas, the hope of Christmas. Uh, when you think of Christmas, I don't know what you think of when you think of Christmas, but most of us have a picture in our minds, kind of the picture-perfect postcard Hallmark Christmas moment. Whatever that is, it's the, the magical moment when you were a kid that you remember all the presents under the tree and everyone was there and the smells and it was just glorious. Maybe it's you're older and, and the picture perfect Christmas to you is your kids all around the table and the grandkids at your knee and, and it's just this static moment that's captured forever and it's perfect. But what I've learned is that almost no one I know ends up getting the picture perfect Christmas. We may have that moment etched in our mind, but the reality is there's a lot of other things that are happening. And if you get a picture-perfect Christmas in one particular year, what I know is this, you don't get it every year because families fight, kids get sick, people lose jobs, finances go awry, loved ones die, the kids don't show up, a child wanders away. Those people that you wish were there, whoever they are, don't show up. And those people that you wish weren't there, (laughs) they do. The gift that you wanted, oh, if I just got this gift, Christmas would be perfect. And Santa doesn't show up with it, and neither does Amazon. And you're going, this isn't the Christmas that I wanted. It wasn't this picture-perfect Christmas. I know people who have lost children on Christmas Day. Die. I know someone very close to me whose father walked in and told her mother on Christmas Eve, I'm done with the marriage and I'm done with this family and walked out on them. It wasn't what they expected Christmas to look like, but pain, hurt, sorrow, disappointment, disillusionment don't take Christmas off. And instead, we're left hurting, we're left wounded, and we're left saying, this isn't what Christmas is supposed to look like. Christmas isn't supposed to have these hurts and these pains. But the truth is, Christmas is full of hurts, and it always has been. Even the very first Christmas, there was hurt. Think about Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, his stepfather. He was a man full of hurt, surrounded by this miraculous conception of Jesus, this supernatural birth that's announced by the angels. He was a man full of hurt. And yet, in that moment, God does something Incredible. So we read this story in Matthew chapter 1, one of the gospel accounts, the biographies of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so Matthew 1, verse 18 through 24, it says, The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is indeed from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, or Yeshua, Joshua, conqueror, deliverer, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Joseph is an intriguing figure in the Bible. He's he's a, a pivotal figure. He plays a huge role, and yet we know very, very little about him. 
We don't know his age. We don't know his goals in life. We don't know his educational background. We don't know his aspirations. We don't know the social circles that he runs. We don't know about his upbringing. We know very little about Joseph. Indeed, here's what we know. He's a descendant of David. He's a carpenter. He's a just man or a righteous man or faithful man. Faithful to the law and faithful to Mary. And we know that he loved Mary. That's about what we know about Joseph. But knowing those few things can lead us to a very reasonable conclusion. That this woman that he loved, he believed, was unfaithful to him. She finds out that she's pregnant. And he knows because he's faithful to the law that he didn't have intimate relationship with her because they weren't married yet. They were simply betrothed. And so when they found out that she's pregnant, he's like, well, she cheated on me. She betrayed me. She was unfaithful to me. But because he loved her, he didn't want to shame her. So he's caught in this tension point. I want to be faithful to the law. The law says, put her to death. The law says, cast her out. The law says, send her away. But my heart is for her. And he's hurt. And he's wounded. And so he decides, I'm just going to divorce her quietly. I'm going to just end this thing. But then God shows up. He sends an angel, and this angel shows up in this dream, in this vision, and the angel says, Joseph, uh, Mary was not unfaithful to you. This child is a gift from God. It's a gift for all the world. And because of that, God has come near. God will be with us. So don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Do this thing. I'll be with you. 2,000 years ago, God sent hope to a man who was hurting. And he does the same today for you and I when we're hurting. God sends hope to the hurting. So in this passage, there's three ways that hope moves in our lives. When we're hurting, when we're scared, when we're disillusioned, when we're in pain, when we're uncertain. The first is this. Hope replaces fear. See, when we're hurt... Fear creeps in. Fear that we've blown it. Fear that it's going to happen again. Fear that our future's over. Fear that we'll never be joyful, happy, fulfilled again. Fearful that our lives will never have meaning and purpose. Right? Bob Acoff talked about it last week. He said, fear redirects our worship. What we're afraid of, what we fear, we end up worshiping. So take, take finances, for instance. If you are afraid that you won't have enough. You operate from a, a, a mentality of lack or poverty. And listen, you can have a lot of money and still be afraid that you're not going to have enough. I know a lot of wealthy people who operate this way. And what happens is you cling to what you have and say, mine, mine. When you're afraid, you won't be generous because you don't have hope of anything outside your own ability to manufacture money. And so it makes you stingy. So when a pastor says we're going to have a church uh, Christmas offering, you say, I can't do that. I mean, inflation and this and that, and I, I, I can't do that. And when you hear a pastor say tithing is giving 10% back to the local church, you thumb through the Bible to find every reason and justification why you don't have to do that because you're operating out of a, uh, a spirit of fear. I don't see anything outside myself 
So instead of saying, my God shall supply all my needs, it's incumbent on me to supply all my needs. And I'm afraid that if I give to the church, I can't even trust how they're going to use my gifts and my finances. And, and so we deal with this fear. But when we are filled with hope, we say, it's not about what I have. It's who has me. I can give and I can be generous because I see my source as something is outside of myself. So Joseph is afraid. He's hurting and he's afraid and fear creeps in and he says, I don't want to do this. And he's about to call the whole thing off. And then the angel shows up and the angel says, don't be afraid. And his fear is replaced with hope. But here's the incredible thing. And maybe you've never thought about it like this before. His fear is replaced with hope. But the angel didn't give that message to anyone else. The angel doesn't show up to Joseph's mom and dad and say, hey, he's about to do this thing, but I told him it's okay and it's fine. He doesn't need to be afraid and neither do you. Their fears were still there. The angel doesn't show up to his friends and say, listen, he's, he's not out of his mind. Trust him. Don't be afraid for Joseph. Everyone looked and said, Joseph is still doing this thing and we don't understand it because by marrying her, he was in a sense, saying, I'm going to take the, the, the scandal on myself. Nobody believed this was God's baby. They all believed it was Joseph's. If Joseph had sent her away, he would have been claiming innocence by marrying her. He's accepting guilt. And he is risking so much because of the guilt and the scandal, because he's, in a sense, in a sense allowing people to say, you're not a just man. You're not a righteous man. You're not a faithful man. He's a carpenter. He's a businessman. His clients, his customers could all abandon him. He could lose his business. He could lose his reputation. He could lose the sense of people looking at him as a man of integrity and character. Why do you think when they show up at Bethlehem, this is his hometown, right? He's got family there. Why do you think there's no room at the inn? It's not because there was no place for Mary. When you show up with a wife who's about to give birth, you got to be a heartless person for no one in that town to open up their home to him. Not one person had a guest room. It's not that there was no room in the inn. It's that their hearts were full of judgment, pointing a finger, saying, we're not letting that in here. He risked everything. Are you hurting this Christmas? Are you afraid, fearful for a child who's walked away, fearful of your future, fearful for your finances, fearful of what uh, decision you need to make or conversation you need to have? Are you afraid of letting someone down? Are you afraid about having to let someone go? Allow God to bring hope into your heart, to replace your fear with hope, because when you do, something amazing happens. And we see it in the story. We're not going to look at it, but what happens? When you allow hope to replace fear, God sends people. He sends resources. He opens doors. He sends words of encouragement. We see all those things in the life of Mary and Joseph Gifts are given, prophecies are spoken, words of encouragement are, 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 are spoken into their lives over and over and over. So are you afraid? Is there something that you need to do? Is there something that, that, that's just uh, filling your heart with fear? Allow God's hope to fill your life. It won't keep the difficult things from happening. It won't keep the hurts from happening. It won't keep the pain at bay. Hurt, disillusionment, getting let down and being disappointed are part of life. But here's what happens. God gives you hope to overcome your fears and keep going. 
you wake up and you say, I'll do what the Lord has asked me to do. I'll do all that God's asking of me. I'm not going to allow fear to hold me back. I'm going to allow hope to propel me forward. So when we allow God's hope into our lives, hope replaces fear. But here's the next thing. Hope frees you from the power of sin. Who believes that Jesus came to forgive your sins? Amen. So we're all in agreement. I'm raising my hand too. Jesus came to forgive our sins. Let me be clear. That's not all Jesus came to do. But we reduce Jesus coming, the hope that he gives us as the forgiveness of sin. We think the hope of Christmas is our sins to be forgiven. But here's what the angel said to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 12, uh, verse 21. It says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will, what's the word? Okay, some of you can't read. So that, it's save, okay? He shall do what? He shall save his people from their sins. He shall save his people. You're going to call him Jesus, Joshua, deliverer, the one who is going to lead the people in to take possession of the promised land, which means we need to vanquish those things that don't need to be there. Jesus is going to be that person. But this is not what we hear. We don't hear that Jesus is going to save his people from their sin. When we read it, this is what we hear. You shall call his name Jesus and he will forgive his people of their sins. We reduce the gift of hope to forgiveness. Listen to me. God does forgive us and thank God he does. But the hope of Christmas is greater than just forgiveness. It's richer than that. It's more powerful than that. Because what the hope of of Christmas is, is that we no longer need to be dominated by a life of sin. We don't have to sin. We can live free from the power of sin. We don't have to live a life in bondage to sin any longer. Jesus came to forgive your sins and to free you from the power of sin. Jesus came to forgive your sins because there's going to be times when we sin. I get that. And when we sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of all sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But here's the thing. The greater thing is not to have to walk in sin at all. It's almost as if sometimes we say the hope I have is that I can sin and just keep turning to God to forgiveness. And listen, we do have that assurance. But the hope that we have is that we can live free from the power of sin. So I'm not talking about um, uh, sin in the sense of I thought I I had a bad thought. Okay, that is sin. I'm not saying that's not sin. I'm talking about uh, the act of sin. Who can go 10 seconds without sinning? So let's all agree, if you turn and punch somebody in the face right now, that that's a sin. Who can go the next 10 seconds and not punch somebody in the face? If you can, raise your hand. If you can't, get out. No, we, right? so if you can go 10 seconds without sinning, can you go 30 seconds without sinning? If you can go 30 seconds without sinning, can you go a minute? If you can go a minute without sinning, can you go 10 minutes? If you can go 10 minutes without sinning, could you go a half hour? You can in church, right? We can all be clean and nice and, and kind and sin-free in church. Can you go a day? Could you go a week, right? Listen, I get it. I understand we're, we're going to stumble and we're going to fall and God forgives us. I'm not saying we're never going to sin again. 
I'm saying we, because of the greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. God fills us with his Holy Spirit. So he frees us from the power of sin. We no longer have to live a life dominated by sin, where we have no choice in the matter, where we feel like we just have to give in to our base compulsions and our base desires. We have the Holy Spirit of God inside of us, which allows us to walk free from the power of sin. That's the hope of Christmas. Or as Paul wrote to the church in Rome, he said, sin is no longer your master, so stop living like it. You don't have to give in to sin. Sin is no longer your master. And for some of you, you're here this morning just to hear this truth because it will change your Christmas and it will change your life. Listen to me. Sin is no longer your master. Some of you need to hear this. Lust is no longer your master. Pornography is no longer your master. Anger is no longer your master. Fear is no longer your master. Selfishness is no longer your master. Drugs and alcohol are no longer your master. Having no self-control and lashing out at your spouse is no longer your master. Mistreating your kids and not making time for them is no longer your master. When you do those things, you're choosing to do those things. Because the hope of Christmas says you can be free from the power of sin. Jesus didn't come just to forgive you of your sins, to forgive you of something. He came to free you from something. So some of you don't even call it sin, but you know you're caught in this cycle of self-destructive habits. Things that you know you don't want to do, but you do anyway. And things you know you ought to do, but you choose not to do. And I know I shouldn't say that, but I say it anyway. And I know I shouldn't go there, but I go there anyway. And I know I shouldn't act this way, but I act this way anyway. And you keep giving in to this cycle of self-destructive habits, this cycle of sin that destroys your relationships, it tears apart your life, and it destroys your future. And Jesus says, I came to save my people to deliver them from the power of sin. Sin is no longer your master. And so when you get the urge to pull out your phone and say, I just got to look at something because it's going to make me feel a certain way for a certain number of seconds. Sin is no longer your master. But I need to go and hang out with those group of people because they make me feel a certain way. Sin is no longer your master. But I need to pick up the phone and call him because he gets me. Sin is no longer your master. But it's who I am and it's who God made me. Sin is no longer your master. And that is the hope of Christmas, that God sends his hope to replace our fear. And God sends his hope to set us free from the power of sin. But there's a third thing, and here it is. God's hope comforts you with his presence. Hope comforts you with God's presence. And you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. God has come near. Joseph is afraid. And God says, my presence is here. You don't need to be afraid any longer. I know you're hurting, but I'll bring you comfort. See, there's another part of the Christmas story, and we don't really talk about it very much because it's horrible. It is, it is an, it's an atrocity. We don't like to think about it, so we kind of gloss over it. But it, it, it's... It, it, when, when we read it, you're going to see this brought pain and suffering to dozens and dozens and dozens of families. So here it is. It's recorded in the second chapter of Matthew, verse 16. 
When Herod knew the Magi had fooled him, he flew into a rage. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem, two years old and younger, according to the time when he learned, uh, the time he learned from the Magi. So let me give you a little background on Herod. Herod was the king that was set in place by the Romans. He was a puppet king. Uh, he's known as Herod the Great, and, but he wasn't a great man. He was a great engineer. He was a great architect. Some of the stuff he built was incredible. He built a city on the Mediterranean called Caesarea Maritime. He, made, he built a man-made um, bay in order to make that a central hub of trading so that ships could come in. No ships could come in there. And you go to this day and you see what he built. It's incredible. The aqueducts that he built, the precision. I forget exactly now what it is, but they drop like a quarter of an inch, exactly a quarter of an inch every half a mile or something. It's incredible. Uh, the, uh, the temple in Jerusalem, Beautiful. A historian uh, said, if you haven't seen the temple in Jerusalem, you've never seen a beautiful thing. It was amazing. It's an an architectural marvel, an engineering marvel. We still to this day don't know how he built it. He built Masada, this this fortress on top of a mountain. It's incredible. So he was a great architect. He was a great engineer, but he wasn't a great man. As Bob shared last week, (laughs) he murdered one of his wives, three of his sons. Uh, Augustus, Caesar Augustus said, better to be Herod's pig than one of his sons. He was not a good man. And when he finds out these magi, these wise men, these philosophers from the east, you say, hey, we saw the star in the sky. We came and the king of the Jews is born. We want to worship him. He feels threatened. He murdered people who threatened his power and his position. And so he says, I want to come worship the king too. Worship him with a sword. But the Magi are warned by God not to report to Herod where the baby was born. So they leave and they fool him. And he finds out and he is incest. He is so mad. He is, he is bloodthirsty. So he sends soldiers to Bethlehem. So imagine now you're a parent and you're in Bethlehem. Now Bethlehem's this little outpost town outside of Jerusalem. The, the soldiers were stationed there regularly. So they would do their rotation. Soldiers would come and go. It wasn't any great deal. So these families are there. And all of a sudden, this garrison of soldiers shows up, and they don't really think anything of it. And then all of a sudden, they start banging on the house doors, saying, everyone come out. Everyone out. And they start gathering up the whole community. They say, do you have children? Yes. How old are they? And they begin to segregate out all those with young children. And then they start asking more questions. Do you have any boys? Yeah. How old are the boys? And they ascertain the ages. And so finally... There are several dozen families that are off to the side. And then and only then. See, if the soldiers had said why they came, came, people would have fled. Then and only then do the soldiers carry out their order. And they grab these little boys. Three months old. Eight months old. A year old. Two years old. We don't know how they murdered them. We don't know how they killed them. We don't know how they massacred them. Did they snap their necks? Did they run them through with a short sword? Did they stomp on them with horses? Whatever it was, it was horrible. It was awful. And these parents are screaming out. Some of them probably tried to intervene for their children and they gave their life as forfeit as well. And as the soldiers walk away, parents are left holding the lifeless bodies of their baby boys. And they have no idea why this just happened. Some of them, you can imagine, are crying out to God to intervene, to do something, and their pleas seem to fall on deaf ears. And yet we read in the story, God warned Joseph in a dream, 
Herod sending soldiers to kill the boy. Take him and his mother and flee. And so Jesus' life is spared. But have you ever asked a question? Why didn't God warn the other families? Why didn't he warn these boys? We don't know how many it was. People say it was thousands and thousands. It probably wasn't. Based on the uh, population of Bethlehem and the surrounding area at the time, it was probably about 24 or so uh, boys, no more than 50. It wasn't thousands, but it was still horrible. It was horrific. Why didn't God warn those families? Why didn't God take out Herod before he could issue that order? Why didn't God stay the hand of the soldiers like he, he shut up the mouth of the lions? Maybe you've asked those questions and maybe you haven't, but I I would guarantee you this. When pain hits your life, when hurt hits your life, when turmoil hits your life, when things don't go the way you want and life goes off the rails, you ask those questions. God, why did you let my wife die? God, why did you let my child die? Why did you let my parents split up? Why did you allow my family to be ripped apart? Why did you let them walk out of my life? God, why didn't you stop it? Why did you allow this sickness into my life? Why did you allow this disease? Why didn't you change it? Why didn't you stop it? Why am I hurting? God, why didn't you do something? See, when pain hits and hurt hits, we have two choices. We can cry out to God, why me? Why did you let this? Why is this happening? Or we could say, God, I don't understand this. And we can run to him. Here's what I know. God rarely, rarely, rarely answers the why me questions, but he always responds when you run to him. And when you run to him, it doesn't make the pain go away. It's still there and you still have to process it. When you run away, when you run to him, he doesn't promise that hardships are going to cease. What he promises is that he'll be there with you. If I could tell you why everything has happened to you, I don't think the answers would heal the hurt in your heart. I can't tell you why, but even if I could, the answers usually don't heal the hurt in our heart. What, ha- what helps is that when we run to God and we say, God, I don't understand this. I don't know why this happened. And he says, I, I-, I understand that. But here's my promise. When you run to me, I'll be there with my arms wide open. Here's what it says in Psalm, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He comes close. He gets down on his knees and picks us up and holds us. God is near the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. When you run to God and you say, this is hard. I don't understand this. He says, what you don't understand is that I hurt for you. And my promise is you don't have to ever go through pain and suffering and hurt and turmoil and disappointment and disillusionment alone. I will always be with you. I'll always hold you. I'll always comfort you. I'll always pick you up in my arms. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I know life sometimes is unfair and it deals you a bad hand and I am sorry about that, but that is life. That is the deal. God doesn't offer us a life without hurt. He offers us a life filled with hope. We say, God, why don't you stop it? He says, one day I will. One day I'll stop all the pain. I'll stop all the suffering. 
when the sky is torn in two, when the trumpet sounds, when Jesus descends on a cloud, all the pain, all the suffering, all the hurt will all be done forever. But until then, we can run into God's presence and receive his hope. We can allow him to give us hope instead of fear. We can allow his hope to set set us free from the power of sin. And we can allow his hope to bring comfort in his presence. See, here's the thing. We go, I don't understand. God warned Joseph and Mary. He spared his son and he let all those other boys die. But we forget the rest of the story because the Bible says God loved us and he didn't even spare his own son. So yes, Jesus didn't die that day in Bethlehem as a baby, but some 35 years later, he laid down his life. He said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And he hung, beaten and bruised, tortured on a cross, taking on all the sin, all the shame, all the condemnation. And he died a brutal death. God didn't spare his son. If God's answer to those families, why did you let those boys die? Well, say, listen, 35 years from now, my son's going to die. You don't understand it now, but you'll understand it later. That wouldn't have healed the hurt in their heart. Some of you are going through some things, and if God explains it to you, it's not going to heal the hurt in your heart. What God's asking you to do is, will you trust me? Will you trust me when the pain is there? Will you rest in my presence? Allow me to wrap my arms around you. See, 2,000 years ago, Jesus was born, and hope was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. My question for you is, are you allowing God to place his hope in your heart this Christmas? Are you hurting? Are you scared? Are you full of fear? Is sin dominating your life? Do you feel like you don't understand why life is going the way it's going? You don't need to live in bondage to sin. Sin is no longer your master. Fear doesn't need to control you. And God's presence will give you rest and peace if you'll let him. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. God, I ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, right now, pour hope into our hearts. Pour hope into our lives. Just like Joseph needed hope because he was afraid. Just like we need hope because fear creeps in. Just like we need hope to overcome the the domination of sin in our lives. God, we need hope. And so I'm asking you, would you pour sin into our hearts? We may not understand everything that you're doing, but God, we'll trust you. We'll trust you now. We'll trust you for a future here on earth, and God, we'll trust you for an eternity. And that is the great hope we have. See, some of you need to understand this. If we don't have hope for eternity, then what we have now is the best we're ever going to get. So you might as well shoot your best shot. And that's fine if your life's going okay. But what about the person whose body's racked with sickness, disease, some kind of infirmity? If this is the best they're going to get, it's a cruel joke. But if we have the hope that God's presence brings a future through faith in Jesus Christ, then yes, this is hard and yes, it's difficult. But we can echo the words of the Bible that says this is simply a momentary and light affliction in light of eternity. 
if you have faith in Christ, this is the closest to hell you're ever going to get. This is the worst it's ever going to be. As bad as it is, this is the worst it's ever going to be. And you've got an eternity with no more pain, no more suffering, no more hurt, no more tears. But if you don't have faith in Christ, this is the best it's ever going to be. This is the best you're ever going to get. So you might as well eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you'll die. And this is the closest to heaven you'll ever get. That is the hope that we have, that this is not the end. This is just the beginning. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me. We're going to worship God here this morning. But I'm going to ask the prayer teams to come up. If you'd like prayer, maybe you say, I've given in and I've allowed sin to dominate my life. And let them pray with you that you will find freedom. Maybe you just need to replace your fears with hope. Allow them to pray with you for that. Maybe you need comfort in God's presence. Allow them to pray. But here's one thing I just want to encourage you with. If you need healing this morning, if you need a word of hope, a word of encouragement, if you need deliverance this morning, I believe God wants to move supernaturally. may not have anything to do with what we just talked about, but I believe God's spirit wants to move. You're wrestling with sickness. There's somebody who's probably, I think, just got some kind of respiratory thing. God wants to heal you. Someone else has got an issue in their neck. God wants to just take that pain away. Some of you have marriages and, and relationships that are fractured. God wants to bring in the healing process. Some of you just need a word to keep going, to have hope for the future. So come, let God minister to you here this morning. We'll pray with you now. We'll pray with you after service, but let God do something here so that you'll have a Christmas full of hope.